Well, welcome back to CLA, Christian Life Academy, and this is the first Sunday of the month, so we are uh, beginning our uh, exploration of systematic theology, which basically means uh, another word we might use for that is confessional theology. We're going to uh, dive into the confession, but uh, before we do that, this morning I wanted to just introduce the subject uh, of systematic theology, talk about what it is why it's important, and then uh, how it developed and resulted in uh, the 1689 Confession of Faith that we hold to. So, uh, <clears throat> you begin with this idea of theology itself. What is theology? Well, theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. So, theology at its simplest is simply the word about God. Uh, that's what theology is. And the word is more than just, uh, you know, words written or spoken, but it implies, and this concept of the logos, it implies the wisdom or the organizing reason behind what is spoken or written. So these are organized thoughts about God. That's what theology is. And so systematic theology is one way to approach this study of God. Uh, we see the scriptures themselves even instructing us to think about God in these ways. In his second letter to Timothy, the apostle Paul writes, instructing his young protege and tells him to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And, and as we studied 2 Timothy uh, a year or two ago, you'll remember that uh, this idea of a pattern of sound words was uh, something that Paul spoke of quite often, not only to Timothy, but to others as well, that there is a structure, a pattern to uh, the, the doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, so R.C. Sproul, the, the late R.C. Sproul, uh, has a book actually by, by the title, Everyone is a Theologian. Uh, and the idea is that we all think thoughts about God. Right? We all have ideas about God, uh, and so the question is not, are you a theologian or not? The question is, what kind of a theologian are you? Are you a good one or a bad one? Where are you getting your ideas and your thoughts about God? Are they simply coming out of your own mind, or have you derived them from the Scripture? Are they chaotic and unorganized, or uh, are they informed and organized uh, by the Scripture and by plain reason? So the, the, the idea of putting Christian doctrine into logical order is what systematic theology is all about. It differs from biblical theology. In biblical theology, we would study the Bible as uh, it is written and compiled for us and, and the, the unfolding revelation of God from one book to the next, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so we see that some things in the Old Testament are not as clear as they are in the New Testament. Uh, our confession actually uses the phrase uh, that the gospel is revealed to, to Adam in the garden in Genesis 3. Uh, but then by farther steps, it is more and more revealed, more light is shed on the promise of the Messiah. So that's the idea of biblical theology. Systematic theology uh, doesn't look at theology that way. Instead, what it does uh, is it seriously thinks and reflects on what the scriptures as a whole teach on any given doctrine. So uh, if we want to talk about the doctrine of salvation, for instance, we wouldn't 
look at it in its unfolding revelation from Genesis to Revelation. Instead, we would look at it as a whole. What does the Bible say? And try and distill that down to a summarized idea. Louis Burkhoff, uh, a Presbyterian theologian, says this. He says, systematic theology seeks to give a systematic presentation of all the doctrinal truths of the Christian religion. So there are several key words that are important here in his definition. It is a systematic presentation. That means it's organized. There is a system. The doctrines uh, are arranged in such a way as that they flow from one to another and they make sense. They're organized. It is the truths of the Christian religion. So they are objective they are real, it's not mythology, it's actual truths derived from the scriptures, and it is ex explicitly Christian, right? We're talking about salvation by faith in Christ alone. So this is Christian doctrine that we're talking about. So systematic theology just gathers all that the scriptures say uh, on a series of topics and organizes them in a way that makes sense. Now the reason that we do this is because it helps us answer certain questions. As we're reading the Bible and, and we read a passage perhaps that, that does deal with salvation or uh, the Christian life, some aspect of the Christian life, and we might ask the question, what, what does the Bible say as a whole on this particular topic? And so that's the sorts of questions that systematic theology answers. It helps us rightly interpret difficult passages. When we come to a passage uh, that we have questions about and we're not sure exactly what it means, systematic theology can help us answer that question. This is one of the uh, aspects we talked about when we looked at the idea of studying the Bible and we talked about two rules for biblical interpretation, the analogy of Scripture using your cross-references to let more clear passages interpret the less clear packages, passages. But then we also talked about the analogy of faith, which is letting the overall canon of Scripture help us interpret the unclear passages. Well, that's what systematic theology is, that overall understanding of what Scripture teaches. Now, some people will tell you that systematic theology is a bad thing because they say that we are imposing onto Scripture a system that is foreign to it, that we're trying to force the Scripture into these categories. But that's not at all what we're doing. We're trying to let Scripture itself define these categories for us. Some people might say uh, that doctrine itself divides, that if we pay too much attention to the particulars of doctrine, that's going to divide people from one another. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So what, doctrine, what the scripture is saying is that those who reject sound doctrine, the pattern of sound words that Paul has encouraged Timothy to cling to, and embrace false teaching, they're the ones that cause division. Uh, so sound doctrine doesn't cause division. False doctrine does. So we shouldn't be afraid uh, to study doctrine systematically. <clears throat> but systematic doctrine is more than simply what does the scripture say about any particular topic. Uh, it, it also answers the question of, is there a priority to these doctrines that we're studying? An example of this uh, would be from Paul's letters to Timothy, once again. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we have a doctrine here, the doctrine of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, the one who stands between us and God and mediates for us in our salvation. That's an important doctrine. Where do we place that in relation to other doctrines? Are all doctrines equal, or are some of, do some of them have priority? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Now there's something here. This is scripture. All scripture is profitable. But is this passage as important as the doctrine of the mediator of Christ in our salvation? I don't think so. So systematic theology helps organize our doctrines of the scripture into an order that tells us there is a priority to these things. Some things logically come before others. Some are more important than others. It also answers the question of how they're related to one another. Uh, the doctrines are not, doctrines don't exist in isolation. Uh, they exist in relation to one another, and we'll see that uh, as we introduce the confession of faith in a moment. But systematic theology helps us answer those questions. How are they related? What is the priority? In what order should we present them? In what order are they related to one another? Sometimes systematic theology is referred to as symbolics. So if you are looking perhaps at a... a uh, seminaries website and, and lectures that they might have available that you can download, you might see a class titled something like Baptist Symbolics. And what they mean by that is systematic theology. Uh, symbolics is simply an old way uh, of talking about systematic theology. A symbol is something that stands for something else. And so in, in this classical idea of systematic theology, the statements that systematic theology makes about particular doctrines are symbols representing all of what Scripture teaches on that particular subject. So that's, that's the idea behind systematic theology. Where did it come from? Well, it started very, very early in the history of the church. In fact, I would argue that the Apostles' Creed is a form of systematic theology. It makes statements about what we believe regarding certain doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the church. It is a systematic understanding of our faith. Uh, the Nicene Creed that came shortly after that is a systematic doctrine uh, of the deity of Christ. Uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, a systematic understanding of the humanity of Christ. And so these early creeds of the church are an effort to systematize all of what the scripture says on particular subjects. Now, they were generally... Um, written in order to refute heresy that had arisen in the churches and as well to make positive statements about what Christians believed. To answer the question, people in the culture were going, what do you Christians believe? Uh, what, you're worshiping this man? Who is he? And so uh, the creeds answer that question. Well, he's not a man only. He is a man, but he's also God. And, and so they define the nature of Christ for us in a systematic way. The confessions of our faith, though, are more thorough systematic statements than the creeds. The creeds tend to be much shorter. Some of them are longer than others, such as the Athanasian Creed, much longer than the Apostles' Creed. But our confessions of faith are much longer uh, than the creeds are. 
the confessions distinguish between groups within uh, the broader Christian culture, right? Uh, but they also show the agreement between those groups, uh, and they prove that the group that puts forth a certain confession of faith uh, is holding to what we would consider orthodox Christianity, right? So we look at the Apostles' Creed and we say every Christian who is truly a Christian should be able to say that they believe the things that are written in this creed. The same with the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, or the Athanasian Creed. If you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. But we hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. We believe it to be an accurate summary of the things Scripture teaches, but we don't say that if you don't believe this, you can't be a Christian. Right? There are other Christians who don't hold to these same truths, and we think they're Christians. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the purpose of this confession is not to draw the boundaries around what it means to be a Christian the way the early creeds were, but instead this shows our agreement with other Christians, but it also shows where we differ from them in certain ways. Now, you can go beyond a confession of faith to what we would call a full-blown systematic theology. Uh, some of them might be one big volume. Some of them might be multiple volumes. Uh, I have several sets of systematic theology that are three or four volumes each, big, thick books. They're very, very thorough. The difference between those and something like this is that those tend to be the work of one single individual theologian uh, who has dedicated a lot of time to systematically uh, organizing what the scripture says on a very broad range uh, of doctrines uh, and very thoroughly treating those doctrines, maybe even uh, discussing what other people believe in regard, you know, in difference to what he believes. Uh, those typically are not subscribed to by churches or by denominations. Uh, they're more thorough and more detailed. But the confessions are generally written by a group of people, a group of churches, uh, and they are subscribed to by a church or by a number of churches saying, this is what we believe. Uh, so the Protestants during the Reformation issued these confessions so that their beliefs could be examined, that they could be compared to Scripture, uh, that they, so that people would know what they believed, where they were in agreement, and where they were in disagreement. So as we come to uh, our own confession, before we get to it, we kind of have to back up and look at the history that led to it during the Protestant Reformation. You had Luther... Uh, during the Reformation in Germany, and they presented a confession of their faith, the Augsburg Confession, uh, in order that the princes and the, the, the people of Germany could see what it was that the German Protestants were objecting to in Roman Catholicism, what they believed scriptures taught. Uh, and so they began to formulate uh, their understanding of doctrine. And so throughout the Reformation, different groups issued their own confessions of faith. So the first one that we have kind of in our immediate genealogy would be the first London Baptist Confession, which was issued in 1644, very early in the English Reformation. What this confession did was it distinguished particular Baptists in England from the continental Anabaptists. So there was a group on the, the European continent known as the Anabaptists. They rebaptized people. If you went to join their group, you had to get rebaptized by them. They didn't accept uh, infant baptism. They didn't accept sprinkling, uh, baptism by sprinkling. And oftentimes, they didn't accept baptism 
even if it was by immersion, from another group. They required you to be rebaptized, so they were called Anabaptists. Some people in England, during the Reformation in England, had begun to accuse the English Baptists of being Anabaptists. And the problem with that not only was that the English Baptists didn't agree with the Anabaptists on a number of things, but also the Anabaptists had become radical reformers to the point that they were uh, political rebels. They were stirring up strife in the countries that they existed in, uh, in on the continent. And so the Baptists in England were concerned not only to put forward a statement of what they actually believed, uh, but to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists so that people would not uh, get the idea that these guys are rabble-rousers who are going to cause strife in the nation. Uh, and so uh, in England, during this Reformation period, uh, the king had put together an assembly called the Westminster Assembly. Uh, the purpose of the assembly was to put forward a confession of faith that could be subscribed to by all of England. Uh, they intended it to be for the Anglican Church, the Scottish Church. Uh, they wanted all of England to be united under one confession of faith, and it didn't work out that way. Uh, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, never did subscribe to the Westminster Confession, but that was the purpose of it. Well, as the Westminster Assembly began to meet, one of the things they did was they requested that these particular Baptist churches would present to them a statement of what they believed so they could consider it as they were uh, trying to develop this confession that would come out of the Westminster Assembly. And so in 1644, the Baptists uh, put out this confession of faith. It was signed by members of seven churches in the London area, uh, and it was given to the Westminster Assembly for their use, but it was also printed and distributed to those seven churches. Now, it was not unique. Like, they didn't write it in a vacuum uh, and just come up with things out of their own understanding of Scripture. In fact, more than half of it, more than 50% of it, is verbatim copied from the 1596 True Confession, which was written by a group of English exiles in the Netherlands. They had been persecuted in England, had fled to the Netherlands, and had put forward a confession of their faith in 1596. So the, the Baptists took about 50% of that and put it in their confession. Now, they didn't keep all of it because that group in the Netherlands were somewhat bitter uh, because of the persecution they had suffered. And so their, the true confession contains a lot of uh, very polemic, polemical statements against the church leadership in England, sometimes rather harsh and at times personal. And so the Baptists kind of expunged all of that to show that they weren't looking for a fight. They were merely trying to state positively what they believed. The other major source of their doctrines comes from uh, one of the Puritans, who was actually a member of the Westminster Assembly, William Ames, and a book that he had written called The Morrow of Sacred Divinity. Uh, think about bone marrow at the core of your bones. This is the core of sacred divinity. So those were the two sources the Baptist churches used when they put together their confession of faith. They put it out because they wanted to distinguish themselves from the Continental Anabaptists. They wanted to prove to the Westminster Assembly that they were orthodox, that they were genuine Reformed believers. How was it received? Well, Daniel Featley, one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, who was actually an Anglican, uh, this is what he said after the Westminster Assembly read the First London Baptist Confession. He said, these are neither heretics nor schismatics, but tender-hearted Christians. If people would say that about us, 
after finding out what we believe, that would be uh, quite the compliment. To find out that we are not heretics, we're not schismatics, we're not looking to just divide the church and divide the nation, but we're tender-hearted Christians just saying this is what we believe the scriptures teach. That's a very good compliment to be paid. So the, the first London Baptist Confession came out in 1644. Uh, the Westminster Confession was finalized and uh, first published in 1646, two years later. Parliament rejected it and sent it back to the assembly because they wanted a few changes made. They wanted scripture proofs added to it. And so the final form was published in 1648. It was rejected by the Church of England. Uh, it was adopted by the Scottish Church. Uh, but there was another group within England that had separated from the Anglican Church uh, and had adopted some views that were contrary to Anglicanism and to Scottish Presbyterian, views concerning church government and congregational form of church government. They were led primarily by a man by the name of John Owen. He's considered the doctor of the English Reformation, a brilliant theologian. They took the Westminster Confession of Faith modified it to show their views of church government and a few other things, and they published it in 1658 uh, in Savoy, England, and it's called the Savoy Declaration of Faith. Uh, and so this was the Congregational Confession of Faith. It showed quite a bit of unity with the Westminster, but it also distinguished them in certain uh, aspects. So as time went on, uh, the particular Baptist churches in England grew. There became more of them, uh, and they began to see that there was a need for them to show uh, their unity with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And so uh, the first mention that we have of what we now call the, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession uh, is from August 26, 1677. This is from the church book, the, the, the minute book of the Petty France Church in London. It's not in France, it's in London. Petty France was merely the district in London where this church was at. Uh, and this is what was written in the church book. It was agreed that a confession of faith with the appendix thereto, having been read and considered by the brethren, should be published. So it appears that this church wrote a confession of faith. The pastors of this church wrote a confession of faith presented it to the church brethren for their consideration, and after they considered it, they subscribed to it and they published it. Now, uh, they published it in 1677. They, wrote, they published two editions that year, uh, just printings. There were no changes made, just printings, uh, because they, they printed the first one just for the use in their congregation. Other congregations uh, heard about it, read it and said, hey, we would like some of those for our congregation. So they, they did a second printing that year, and it spread like wildfire throughout the, the particular Baptist churches there in London. A third edition was published in 1688, and it's the first edition that is licensed. William and Mary had come to the throne, uh, and they were allowing much more religious freedom. In 1689, they published uh, a law, the Act of Toleration, that allowed people uh, to openly practice their faith uh, who were dissenters from the Church of England. So in 1688, the this London Baptist Confession was published for the first time legally. The previous two printings had been kind of 
uh, illegal printings. They were not licensed by the crown, uh, and the churches kind of had to hold to it in secret. So in 1688, it's published, licensed openly. The particular Baptist churches in London uh, decide it's time for us to go public with this, so they called a general assembly in 1689. A uh, hundred churches gathered in London, messengers from those churches. Uh, they formally uh, subscribed to and adopted the 1689, uh, what we call the 1689. They adopted the Second London Baptist Confession. And that's why we call it the 1689, because that was the year it was adopted by the general assembly. It was not actually written in 1689. There actually wasn't printed in 1689, but that was when it was adopted. The fourth and final edition that we know of that was published during that time period was in 1699 uh, when they published additional copies because more churches uh, had been planted. The Petty France Church there in London, the two pastors of that church were Nehemiah Cox and William Collins. Uh, who are largely considered to be responsible for writing the confession. Uh, as we think about uh, what they accomplished here and how they accomplished it, uh, we can consider the sources that they had available to them as they put this confession together. They would have had the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, they would have also had the Greek and the Hebrew readily available to them. They would have had a copy of the Westminster Confession, a copy of the Savoy Declaration, and the First London Baptist Confession. All three of those works make an appearance. There are times where it's verbatim, the same as the Westminster. There are other times where they uh, copied from the Savoy. There are other times where they reverted back to language of the First London Baptist Confession. They also quite obviously had available to them many of the published works of John Owens, Thomas Goodwin, uh, John Lightfoot, particularly, as well as many of the other Puritans of the era, because they use some phrasing and wording that comes directly from the writings of those people. And so they published uh, this confession of faith that was later adopted and signed by a hundred churches there in London. This is a miniature systematic theology. There are 32 chapters here uh, detailing for us what the particular Baptists in London at this time uh, believed the scriptures taught. And it is organized. It is organized into four major divisions. In each of those divisions, the first chapter uh, kind of sets the foundation for that section of the confession. Uh, and then the further chapters in that division expound upon and develop the ideas of that first chapter. For the most part, each chapter is organized that way as well. The first paragraph is foundational to the doctrine that chapter is teaching, and any further paragraphs develop that idea further. And there are one or two exceptions to that, particularly the chapter on adoption, which is only one paragraph long. Uh, but so as we read it, we need to understand this is a systematic theology, and so we can't just jump into the middle of it uh, and understand it without considering what came before and what comes after, because it is an organized understanding of theology. Uh, we need to understand that whatever we're reading is some way related to the chapters that have come before it and to the chapters that will follow it. And so as we read, we ought to ask the question, how is this related to what has come earlier? How did what come earlier set the foundations for this particular thing I'm reading? How is this anticipating what will uh, come later in the confession? Here are the four major divisions of the confession. Chapters 1 through 6 are basically first principles of theology. Chapters 7 through 20 
expound the particular Baptist understanding of covenant theology. Chapters 21 through 30 uh, outline for us God-centered living, and chapters 31 and 32 speak of the world to come. So as we consider uh, this outline, the first six chapters are the first principles of theology. Chapter 1, of course, uh, as we look at it, is of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, and so this is the principle, what, what was known in that time in Reformed scholasticism as the principle of knowing. How can we know anything about God? How can we know anything uh, about theology? Well, we must base what we know on the Scriptures. Everything that follows in the Confession is based upon and comes out of our doctrine of the Scriptures. The second chapter, of God and of the Holy Trinity, is uh, considered the principle of being, right? This is the study of the God who is, the self-existent God who has life in himself. Uh, it's the study of the Trinity. Uh, this is God as he relates to himself. The, the technical theological term there is called uh, God's works ad infra, as God works inside himself in the Trinity. But then the third chapter uh, and the fourth and the fifth expound upon the works of God in the world. And so we have of God's decree, of creation, and of divine providence. This is God's work ad extra, God's work outside of himself, uh, God's external work. The Baptist catechism that is often appended to the back of the confession follows the confession in many ways, and it kind of helps us understand the outline. Question 10 of the catechism says, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Well, then question 11 asks us, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So we can see the relationship between chapter 3 and chapters 4 and 5 of creation and of providence. They are expounding upon the doctrine of chapter 3, the decrees of God. So then chapter 6, the final chapter of that first division, is uh, of man, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And so that is uh, a principle foundational doctrine of the Christian faith that man is sinful and in need of salvation. So those are the, the first principles in that first division. The second division, chapters 7 through 20, uh, covers the Baptist understanding of covenant theology. This is where the confession differs uh, significantly from the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration because the Baptist understanding of covenant theology was considerably different than that of the Presbyterians, which also leads to a difference uh, on issues such as baptism and church government. So we start off with chapter 7, which is of God's covenant, and then chapter 8, of Christ the mediator or the head of the covenant, and then chapter 9, of free will, that this is the setting of the covenant, uh, and then we have chapters 10 through 13, which relay to us the blessings of the covenant. It's interesting, this organization, because if we look at the titles of these, they appear to be out of order if we were to consider the ordo, ordo salutis as it is on the poster back there. Because here we have 
of effectual calling, of justification, of adoption, of sanctification, of saving faith. Well, saving faith in the order, ordo salutis should come much earlier. Why does it come so far down in this organization of systematic theology? If we're trying to put things in order, why does it appear to be out of order? Well, it's because the way this is organized is chapters 10 through 13 are the covenant blessings. They are the acts of God as he saves his people. He, he calls them, he justifies them, he adopts them, he sanctifies them. Chapters 14 through 18 are then covenant gra graces. These are the acts of humans in response to God's acts. They have saving faith. They repent unto life and salvation. They follow that with good works. They persevere. Notice it's the perseverance of the saints, not the preservation of the saints. This is the section of the confession that is dealing with man's actions rather than God's. The saints persevere. Chapter 18, of the assurance of grace and salvation. So, so that is man's response to God's covenant. And then chapters 19 and 20 at the end of this section are of the law of God and of the gospel and the extent of the grace thereof. This is a significant departure from the Westminster Confession that doesn't even have a chapter on the gospel. Uh, but the Baptists thought this was very important, that we relate uh, the covenant revelation as Scripture relates it. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law of God, in the New Testament, the gospel of God. And so they gave us those two chapters on the law and the gospel. Then chapters 21 through chapters 30 uh, give us God-centered living. Chapter 21 is the foundational chapter for this, of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. Everything that follows in this section is about Christian liberty. In fact, John Owen, uh, the congregational theologian, uh, said that this idea of Christian liberty was, in his view, the second principle of the Reformation. The first principle was the authority of Scripture. The second principle was Christian liberty because the Reformers thought that what Roman Catholicism had done was imposed on the consciences of Christians certain things that the Bible did not dictate. And so they were binding the conscience of believers. They were imposing on Christian liberty. And so this section develops this idea of Christian liberty, our freedom in Christ. But it also shows us that there are some boundaries around that freedom. So chapter 22, of religious worship and the Sabbath day, relates to us um, the idea of the regulative principle, which protects Christian liberty. The, the reformers quite clearly taught that the idea that the scripture regulates how we worship God is a protection of the individual Christian's liberty in Christ because it prevents church leaders from binding the consciences of believers into doing things that the scripture never commanded. James Renahan comments on this point and says, the Puritan doctrine of the regulative principle expressed the belief that anything introduced in worship that was not commanded in scripture was an intrusion on Christian freedom. To make believers participate in actions in worship not commanded by God is a violation of their liberty. So this was a very important doctrine to the reformers and to the Baptists in particular who felt that many of the, the beliefs of the Presbyterians were imposing on the Christians uh, things that the scripture did not. 
Uh, and so they saw themselves as thoroughgoing reformers who were applying this idea of the regulative principle in order to safeguard Christian liberty. We then see um, the chapter on lawful oaths and vows, uh, which again is part of our worship. If we look at that, the very first line of that chapter is a lawful oath is a part of religious worship. So it's still uh, talking about our freedom in Christ as we worship. But then chapter 24 uh, is of the civil magistrate. And so this chapter dictates the extent of our freedom and liberty and also the boundaries of it within society. Chapter 25 of marriage is Christian liberty and living in regards to this institution of marriage. Chapters 26 through 30 uh, deal with life in the church, of the church, of the communion of saints, of the baptism and the Lord's Supper, of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. So uh, this dictates for us what the extent and the boundaries of our liberty are within the church in submission to Christ as the head of the church. And then the final two chapters of the confession, chapters 31 and 32, of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead, and then chapter 32, of the last judgment. These chapters detail for us uh, the, final par the final section of the confession dealing with the world to come. Uh, next, we next month, uh, as we get into this, I think we'll begin by uh, looking at the original uh, preface to the confession. Uh, I hope that's in your copies. I'm not sure if it's not. You can let me know and I can print it off for you. Uh, but this is the original preface written by uh, the churches who subscribe to this uh, and published with the confession, uh, an introduction to it that talks about their purposes in publishing the confession, what they hope to accomplish by it, and whatnot. So next month, that's what we'll look at. And then the month following, we'll begin looking at each chapter of the confession, hopefully covering one chapter each time we meet. Uh, some of the longer chapters might take us two times to get through. But let's close this morning in a word of prayer.